If you remember from last Lord's Day, I mentioned to you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16, 17, and 18, that God's will for the Christian life is seen by rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks in all circumstances. The Apostle Paul loved to teach various triads of virtue and responsibility, like this one, and of course other triads like faith, hope, and love. I also told you last time that these three in particular, what I called RPG, rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks, are in many places in Paul's writings in the New Testament, including even in 1 Thessalonians itself, outside of chapter 5. And before we get to chapter 5, you might just turn over to chapter 3, and I'll show you verses 9 and 10. Paul says there, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. You see RPG there? He says, for all the joy in verse 9, he says, about prayer in verse 10, as we pray most earnestly night and day, and then starts at the beginning of verse 9 for what thanksgiving. So it's a little bit out of order from what he says in chapter 5, but all three of them are there, aren't they? RPG. That's what we're all called to do. It's God's will for the Christian life. The same triad of verses, excuse me, of virtues as fellow believers, responsibilities, really, they are, because we're all called upon to rejoice and to pray and to give thanks. Now, I also told you last time that the only way that this RPG is going to occur in both individual Christian lives and corporately in the life and ministry of the congregation as a whole is by the power and will of the Holy Spirit. And this is precisely why Paul mentions, as you go now back to chapter 5, in verse 19, this statement, do not quench the Spirit. It happens right after that triad, right after he speaks of rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, he says immediately, do not quench the Spirit. You remember that I said to you last time that this phrase referencing the ministry of the Holy Spirit is like a hinge statement, like the hinge in a door that swings both ways. Because this reference to the Holy Spirit swings first backward in that you have to have the power, the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to rejoice always. You have to have the powers, 
this, uh, the Holy Spirit's power and enablement to be able to pray constantly. And you have to have the Holy Spirit's power and will for you and I to be able to give Him thanks in all circumstances. You remember I said it may not be for all circumstances, but it certainly is the giving of thanks in all circumstances. And if you're like me, and if you're anything like the Thessalonians, given their suffering, their persecution, their trials, their temptations, what they went through, uh, anything that you and I may be going through, it takes all of the power of the Spirit of God and all of His enablement for me and for you to say, I rejoice always, that I pray unceasingly, and that I give God my thanks in all my circumstances. That's the satiation of the Holy Spirit, not the quenching of the Spirit, but the satiation of the Spirit, His power, His enablement for me to do this RPG. No wonder right after those, those virtues, that Pauline triad, does He say, do not quench the Spirit. It's as though the door is swinging backwards to, to grasp, to, to pull up all of this rejoicing, all of this praying, all of this giving thanks to remind us that it is the Holy Spirit that gives us the power to do that. And in our own strength, in and of our own power, we're not doing that. In fact, I suspect we're doing the opposite. We're not rejoicing always, we're becoming embittered. We're not praying without ceasing, we end up not praying at all, or very little and certainly not constantly. And as to the giving of thanks in all circumstances, not on your life. How can I give God thanks when this is happening to me, when this has come into my life, whatever it may be? No, if it's true of me and it's true of the Thessalonians, it's undoubtedly true of you as well, and that is I need the Spirit's enablement to be able to say that I'm rejoicing always and that I'm praying night and day. Isn't that what he said in chapter 3? Praying earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And what circumstances are coming their way? Suffering, persecution, trials, temptations. No, we need the Spirit to swing backwards in that door and in some cases to hit us right in the face with a rejoicing and a praying and a giving of thanks by the power of the Spirit. Now, mind you, I said it's like that hinge on the swinging door. It's also the power and the enablement of the Holy Spirit to look forward, to to see the door swinging in the forward direction. And, And... What's that for? Well, because in verses 20 and 21 and 22, we are going to need the Holy Spirit to give us understanding and wisdom as we talk about the communicating ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, that seems maybe like an odd statement, the communicating ministry. Ministry of the Holy Spirit, what is that? 
Well, that's what we're about to address in these next verses. Verse 19, looking forward, the Holy Spirit's ministry, not just to allow us to rejoice and pray and give thanks, but also not to stifle or quench Him because we are, according to verse 20 and 21 and 22, to understand this, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now, if you're like me, you read those words off the page of 1 Thessalonians 5, and you say, like I did when uh, I came to study this text, not only many years ago, but certainly for this week's preaching, and I said, what in the world does this mean? What does this mean? What does it mean, do not quench the Spirit? Do not despise prophecies. Test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. What does that mean? These set of very, very short verses, whatever they mean is meant by me when I refer to the Holy Spirit's communicating activity in the life of the Thessalonian church. Whatever it means, and whatever we're going to look at what it means, both now and next Lord's Day, it's something to do about the Holy Spirit and His communication. The Holy Spirit's communicating activity among the Thessalonians and among the early church was incredibly important. And you're going to say, well, you're going to have to explain this to me. All right, I will. And I will, and here's how I'll start out by explaining it. Now, this is going to seem like something that comes right out of the blue because perhaps you might not have even been thinking about what I'm about to say as it relates to the Holy Spirit's communicating activity. Here's what I mean. These epistles, if you were here for the first introductory message on First and Second Thessalonians, I told you that perhaps with the exception of the book of Galatians, which may have been written possibly around A.D. 48 or so, that these first letters of Paul to the Thessalonians, first and second, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, were the earliest Pauline epistles and perhaps even some of the earliest writings of the New Testament, chronologically speaking. Now, that's very important. As we understand what we're going to learn today, that's very important. You see, all of the rest of Paul's letters were written, of course, later. These are, these are the first from, from his pen, maybe except Galatians, but maybe there then only a year or two before, perhaps maybe three at the most, and the Gospels written later, 50s, 60s. The other New Testament letters that are non-Pauline, maybe only James was written very, very early, mid-40s perhaps, but even the rest of those some of them written in the 80s and 90s, like, like the Apostle John writing the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and last, of course, the book of Revelation, probably in 88, 89, 90, somewhere around there, A.D. 
You say, well, what significance does that have to do with anything? Well, it's significant in this sense. It's significant that whatever Paul is telling them about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, what you and I enjoy as the full and complete revelation of God of the 27 books of our New Testaments, they didn't have. They did not have what you and I enjoy. In fact, earlier, by mistake, I'm sure, I heard someone pulling out their phone and going to a passage that can actually be audio read to you, right? I mean, we have, we have all the bells and whistles. We've got a paper Bible. We've got a, a smartphone. We've got a tablet. We've got all kinds of ways and means in which we can read all the way through the entire Bible, the 66 books, the 39 of the Old Testament, and the 27 of the New, and, and we can read these at our leisure, and we have them at our mere fingertips. The Thessalonian church was not like that at all. In fact, when Paul wrote them First and Second Thessalonians, perhaps they may have had some inkling of some writings somewhere in which the Holy Spirit was continuing to communicate through the pages of what we now know as the canon of our New Testament, canon just being rule, meaning ruler, standard. But they had precious little, these Thessalonians, precious little. Perhaps they didn't even know there was a Galatians. That is a book to the Galatian region of churches. The Gospels would have been written after this. Just think of that in your minds. Think of what you and I study from 1 Thessalonians and when I take you from this passage and then to the next passage and then we'll cross-reference over here. It's easy for you and me because we have the fullness of it. They didn't even have anything at their fingertips. They had to have it read to them. It was an oral culture. They, they listened to what Paul was writing to them, but perhaps, as I've said, maybe some of them were illiterate, maybe even many of them, and so they had to hear, they had to, to be taught in ways that you and I take so much for granted. This is very, very important. And what's significant about all this is because these historical dates tell us what books were first written, and we can speculate with high degrees of accuracy when they were written, and perhaps when they were even read, to whom they were read, and when. And this makes an important point, because if you and I are reading these words off the page in chapter 5, and it says, do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil, they had to put their thinking caps on, they had to know that there were some people coming into town with supposed prophecies from the Lord. They had to know, is this a true prophecy? Is this person a true prophet? How do I know? How does this line up? Is this prophecy, which, by the way, prophecy itself does not have to be just talking about events in the future, right? Predictive prophecy. This is going to happen. You'll go here. This will be done. This will happen in the church, Prophecy in the sense that Paul's talking about here is prophecy like prophecies of encouragement. 
prophecies of exhortation, prophecies about encouraging and exhorting the Thessalonians in their valiant attempt to live the Christian life under much persecution, much suffering. They had hardly anything written not only to them, but for them as these other New Testament churches. Can you imagine these churches were trying to get along with all this, this frenetic persecution and accusations and, and all kinds of suffering and trials and temptations, and they had precious little of what you and I have here. Can you imagine they hung on every word of Paul as First and Second Thessalonians was read to them? hanging on every word. Perhaps in their church they said, read it again. Read it again. Oh, could you read it again? We'd say, what time is lunch? I'm tired. He just drones on and on and on. They would say, read it again. This is... This is all we have. This is what we need. We need this instruction. And perhaps, because it does say, and that's why I read 1 Thessalonians 3, 9 and 10, he says, we pray most earnestly night and day, does Paul, that we, that is, Paul and his ministry associates, may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. They had a lot lacking in their faith. Paul, when are you coming back? We, th- we thank you for, for having Timothy come, and we've told them uh, all the things that we have by way of questions, by way of how we're doing, and we know he's going to come back, Timothy, and, and give you a report, and now we're in desperate need of you writing something to us or sending Timothy back, or perhaps this, perhaps also because there are New Testament apostles like Paul, There are also, my friends, New Testament prophets, New Testament prophets, who were sent to churches to encourage them and to exhort them, stand firm, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Don't worry about these trials and these temptations. The Lord is with you, and the Holy Spirit will empower you to persevere. This is what they needed. And somehow, in the providence of God, Paul was hindered, he says, even by Satan at one point in this letter, from being with them. And because he couldn't be with them, he sends Timothy, who risks his life to go there, and when he hears from them and either writes down or remembers exactly what their questions are and how they're doing and what their needs are, and then he goes to Paul, and then Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, talking about another facet of the Holy Spirit's communicating ministry, he writes 1 Thessalonians. And then perhaps he sends Timothy or someone else to them, and it's a full letter And he wants that letter to be read in all the churches. In fact, he says it this way in verse 27 of chapter 5. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Now, my friends, that's an important word. I adjure you under oath 
that this letter is to be read. This is a letter from the Lord God himself through the pen of Paul by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? It's one New Testament letter. And then he writes a second, and it's very short, three chapters for us. And they did not have the written gospels at this point. So what does Jesus say? What's Jesus' word on the matter? And they had precious little. Maybe they didn't even know that there was a Galatians letter. Maybe they didn't know even what was to come with all of these other New Testament letters, including other letters from Paul. Do you think we can get those? Do you think they can be read to us? Do you think they can be circulated our way? They'd be gasping for gospel air and for a New Testament word all the time. And you know, there's another incredibly important aspect which was happening in their midst. I mean, they are visited, and they're visited by who knows whom. They're coming into town. And perhaps these people who are coming into town are saying, I'm a prophet of the Lord. I'm a prophet of the Lord. I want to come to encourage you. And so you know what Paul does? What he does here in verses 19, 20, 21, and 22 is he gives the ground rules so as to discern the Holy Spirit's continuing revelatory communication through these prophets while Paul is absent from them. Now, that's what's going on here. And as I said, I use the word prophecy not necessarily here in predictive prophecy, although, of course, it could be in terms of the day of the Lord, maybe other ways to encourage them about that day. But here, let's call them prophetic utterances. In fact, you may even have in your Bible, depending on your English translation, that phrase, prophetic utterances. Do not despise prophetic utterances. And of course, that word utterance means it's coming from a person, right? The utterance out of this person's mouth. And Paul, wanting them to hear such prophetic utterances and not saying they're completely out of bounds, not saying that they're not needed, in fact, quite the opposite. They're very needed. They're very needed. Now remember, this is the nascent church. This is the, this is the growing baby church of the first century, and they are in need both of spirit-inspired letters and spirit-driven utterances from the prophets, New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets. And this prophetic exhortation from the Holy Spirit is therefore very, very important for us to understand in our minds. Because we have a very different world today from 2,000 years ago. Paul had two ways of seeing that these believers were instructed. And unlike us, because we possess the completed rule, the standard of the New Testament, all 27 books can be read by us and studied very, very carefully. They did not have it. They had Paul's own holy Spirit-inspired word to them, which we now know, of course, as First and Second Thessalonians, and the Holy Spirit was also speaking through New Testament prophets to give these believers further revelatory guidance and exhortation 
to this fledgling local church. You say, well, is there anywhere else where these prophets are being referred to? Yes. Turn over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to go a little slowly on this. I could have just told you what it meant, not given you any of this background. But this is important for us because the idea of prophecy in the church is of major controversy in our day. Major controversy. We need to understand what's going on here. And I believe when we're done, we'll understand it. Look at chapter 4, beginning particularly in verse 11. And when I read these, I want you to understand that there are two things going on here. Number one, let's call it first in priority, but let's also call it first in chronology. The idea that this listing, as it's given, are given in terms of a one, two, three, four as the priority of these brothers, priority in and for the church, but also when it's given here, it's given chronologically in terms of the salvation history of the church from the first century to now. So look at what it says, Ephesians 4.11, and he gave, that is Christ, Christ the gift giver, and he gave the apostles first in priority and first in time. First in chronology. Then the what? The prophets. There they are. That's a listing of the prophets. It, it gives, their, it gives their, uh, their title, as it were, their function. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. We, we could define them as those who were gospelers, gospel preachers. We might even say today, in a sense that gospelers are missionaries going into unreached people groups, uh, a fertile ground for the sake of the gospel and for church planting. And then it says, and pastor teachers or the shepherds and teachers, which actually could probably be hyphenated into pastor teachers. So those, those are the four. And they, they're not just in priority in that order, but also chronologically. Here's what's happening. The, the church is needing to be built up. The, the church is needing to be established. And the establishment of such a church is built upon the historical pedigree of the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists. And the one office that is carried on to this very day are not those but this, pastor-teacher. Pastors, elders, shepherds. You say, how do you know that? Well, look at chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 20. This is most interesting again. It says, you are, in verse 19, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation, notice that word, that's a very important word, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You see, the foundation is being laid for this nascent church. And as that foundation is being laid, the, the very important bricks are the apostles and prophets. And they're put on the same plane here, apostles listed first, first in priority, first in chronology, but also the very important ministry of the prophets, the New Testament prophets, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone the ultimate prophet, the ultimate one being sent 
of the ultimate prophet, the, the one who's giving the prophecy of all prophecies, and he's the cornerstone. This is so very important, my friends. This is, this is what I'm, I'm teaching us so that we may understand we don't have to give up totally on the idea of prophecies that are shown to us as occurring here in the New Testament, and yet we don't by that very nature, believe that all of the prophecies given are true prophecies from the Lord. We have to discern. We have to distinguish. We have to figure out what's going on here. This is, a, this is an interesting example. Go to the book of Acts and look at verse 13. If you want to see how prophecy was being utilized in the New Testament, even with the apostles about the establishing of the church, this is most interesting. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, notice what it says here. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Do you see that? Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, What's the next phrase? The Holy Spirit said. Now you've got the Holy Spirit and prophets in the same context. So the Holy Spirit said, you do the, uh, the logic, through the prophets. The Holy Spirit said, through the prophets, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. You see what's going on? The, the prophets are directing by the Holy Spirit, even someone like Saul, Saul and Barnabas, to go to a certain place. And perhaps you could even say these were not just uh, New Testament apostles like Paul here, Saul by his Hebrew name, but they were also being prophesied to be sent so that they could be gospelers, church planters, evangelists. So these are the officers, as it were, of the church. These are Christ's gifts in building the church. That's what Ephesians 4 is talking about. These gifts are available to us. That is, these gifted men called by the Holy Spirit for work and ministry. And then turn to Acts chapter 19. You see some of the work of these prophets. Acts chapter 19, most interesting. Acts 19.1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now remember, Paul's going into, Saul Paul, going into Gentile territory, and he's speaking about Jewish truths like the Messiah. And they, as Gentiles, didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. But the church has to be built up. The church, the foundation is being laid. And so what does Paul do? He says, then into what 
or whom were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. That's John the Baptist. That was a proselyte baptism. That was immersing them into the Judaism of the time out of their Gentile ways. That's why it was called proselyte baptism. Verse 4, and Paul said, John baptized with the spirit of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, John's baptism, it was good as far as it went. It was a proselyte baptism. They were immersed into all the confines of obedience uh, within the Judaism of the time. But now Jesus has come, and it's far greater than even uh, even the baptism of John. Now it's being baptized in the name of Jesus. That's Matthew 28, 18 to 20, right? That's being baptized in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. So they're baptized in Jesus' name. And then notice verse 6. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So miraculously, the Holy Spirit comes on these brand new believers Gentiles about ready to head to Ephesus is Saul Paul, and these men are needed, and immediately they begin by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit to be speaking in other languages that they'd never studied the gospel so that people in that very language, the language that these men had never studied, were hearing the gospel in their own language and they were believing and being baptized in Jesus' name. And further, these men were prophesying exhortations so that these wonderful new believers would be immediately and ongoingly built up in the faith. Isn't this wonderful? You said, well, why doesn't the Lord do that miraculously today? It would take a whole lot of work off the preacher, I'll tell you that. Well, it's not God's plan. This was the plan for the foundation laying. This is why we don't have apostles today. This is why we don't have prophets today, because the foundation has been laid. So, what about Acts 21? What about Acts 21? Most interestingly... Verse 4, just showing you how the Holy Spirit worked. The Holy Spirit, through the Spirit, Acts 21, 4, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul, essentially, not to go on to Jerusalem. They're saying, wow, Paul, you can't do this. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And then look at verse 10. While we were staying for many days, a prophet, and here's his name, we actually get a name, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands like a kind of like an object lesson and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now look, if you're a lover of Paul, if you love Saul like nobody's business, you love his teaching, you love his ministry, you love his impact in your life, and you're following him, or perhaps he's come to your town and he's helped lay the foundation of this nascent church in your area, you don't want that guy to be messed with. You want him to stay alive, you want him to be healthy. 
So it's very, very natural. And this particular prophet says, this is what's going to happen. This guy's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to be bound, and he is going to be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. And that doesn't sound like a positive thing. Well, verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Well, wouldn't you? I don't don't want something to happen to my Paul. He's my leader. He's my my apostle. He's my discipler. I don't want anything to happen to him in Jerusalem. (laughs) And Paul, so committed, verse 13, then Paul answered, what are you doing Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Look, I love all the hugs and the kisses, but don't stop me from doing what is God's plan for my life. And he says in Acts 20, just before this, I am ready to go to Jerusalem because another prophet told me bonds and afflictions await me there. But he's going right to it. He's not not going away from it for his own self-aggrandizement. He's certainly not going there because he believes it's going to be easy street. No, he knows what's going to happen to him there. And verse 14 says, and since he would not, that is Paul, be persuaded We ceased, and this is always what you and I have to say, let the will of the Lord be done. Okay, Paul, you're not going to give up. We we don't want you to die. We don't want you to be handed over to the Gentiles. They're going to beat you, and they're going to kill you. And Paul says, so be it if that's what happens. The Lord's will is that I go to Jerusalem. And they say, well, the will of the Lord be done. So there are these New Testament prophets, and and they're working, and they're active. And so, that is a background. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5. It's my 45-minute introduction. And you know what? This kind of set of verses demands such an introduction. Now, with, with this in mind, this is what you and I have to have. We have to have two things that Paul says First negative, then positive, that you've got to do with regard to these prophecies. And the first are what we could call negative commands, if you have your uh, outline in the back of the Lord's Day Bulletin, negative commands or prohibitions. That's verses 19 and 20. And then you have positive commands in verses 21 and 22. Positive in the sense that we're actually being told proactively what to do. Here's the negative command of verse 19. Do not quench the Holy Spirit's prophetic man. Now that sounds maybe a little awkward, but let me explain what I mean. He says there, verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. Paul warns the Thessalonians that the Holy Spirit is powerfully and wonderfully coming alongside these believers so as to give them encouragement through prophets, give them instruction through prophets, and he does so through these New Testament prophets, and we've seen them. Their foundation laying in Ephesians 4, it's the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2, and we've seen a couple of references in the book of Acts that these prophets have a great work to do, and they are there by virtue of the plan and will of the Holy Spirit. So don't quench. Don't quench them. Don't quench the Spirit by rejecting them. They're the Holy Spirit's prophetic men. 
They're the, they're the ones being used by the Holy Spirit to speak through them, through these prophetic utterances, to encourage the church. You know, the idea would be something like this. You want the, cur- the church encouraged, don't you? You want the, cur- the church edified, don't you? You want the church built up, don't you? Well, don't quench the Spirit. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. He, he's, he's intending through these brothers to communicate through the utterances of their own voice box God's will and plan. Let them speak. And apparently, these Thessalonians might have been quenching the Spirit. Quenching, by the way, we might sometimes say, well, you know, this helps quench my thirst. That's not what it's talking about. This is talking about stifling. Quenching in the sense of stifling. Don't stifle the Holy Spirit's work through these prophetic servants. That's what he's saying. In other words, their spiritual growth is depending on this. You say, yeah, but, but, they, but they, they have Paul's letter here. Isn't that all that they need? Well, guess what? Even the, the time travel and the effort that it would take for Paul who can't come, who tells Timothy to come, who hears from them all of their needs, and then Timothy has to go back, and most of this was either by a boat or by walking, perhaps an animal of some kind, and it was slow. And so Paul hears, and he thanks God, but then he says, oh, I'd like to come back to you and meet you face to face because there's so much more I need to tell you so that your faith can be strengthened. But in that intermediary time when Paul's not there in their midst, or maybe even when Paul is there in their midst, they need encouragement, and they get that encouragement from these New Testament prophets. And this is a good thing. It might even be that Paul is saying here, look, do not, because of the grammar of this text, do not continue to quench the Spirit. Perhaps they'd already started doing it. Perhaps they were were, uh, not favorable to these particular prophetic utterances, and maybe maybe they were saying, hey, get out of here. Don't, Don't bother us with that. You say you're the mouthpiece of the Spirit. If the Spirit-instructed prophetic man is attempting to speak words of encouragement, Paul says, by no means are you to stifle that ministry. And you know, the same thing, by the way, was happening in a later church with later Pauline letter writing. What church might that have been? Corinth. See, whenever there's something wrong that the preacher asks you, just say Corinth. You're probably right. Because they had all the stuff. They had all the gifts. They had all the abilities. And they had all the problems. And apparently one of their problems was this idea of tongues. That is, speaking a language that you'd never studied in order to gospelize uh, and disciple others. And so maybe they had uh, more of the tongues gifting and more of that showy gift going on And Paul then chastises them and says, but what about the prophecies? What about the prophecies? What about these prophetic utterances? Look, he says, if you're going to give me a comparison and a contrast of an either or, I say, no tongues but prophecy. Why? Why does he say that? Because remember, Tongues was a sign for unbelievers and for the sake of the gospel, but prophecy was for the upbuilding of the church. 
And so he says in 1 Corinthians 14.3 these words, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And he says in verse 4, the one who prophesies builds up the church. Look, you think you're doing all these showy gifts like tongues and people are hearing the gospel and you're all about that, but you're also denigrating somehow and in some way the prophecies for the upbuilding of the church. Yeah, it's one thing to be very much concerned and enjoining tongues for the unbelievers, but how much more important is it also when they become believers for prophetic utterances to build them up? That's what he's saying. So, don't quench the Spirit. Then he says, do not despise the Holy Spirit's prophetic message. Not just the prophetic man. He comes into Thessalonica, and he's God's prophetic man through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and he's beginning to encourage and build up and somehow... Perhaps, we don't know, and we don't know the specific situation, but perhaps Paul has to write them and say, but don't quench that work. Stop doing that. You're actually sort of uh, stifling the Holy Spirit's prophetic man. And now he says with this second admonition, do not despise the Holy Spirit's prophetic message. That's verse 20. Do not despise prophecies. Not just the prophet, but his prophecies. So it's both the man and his message. In other words, don't stifle the speaker. And by all means, don't stifle or despise the prophetic message. And by the way, that word despise, that's a strong word. Don't despise. It may be something like this. Don't see it, these prophecies, as of no account. Don't just uh, stifle the, the man, nor despise his message. See it as of no account. This is important. You say, why is it important? Because guess who's speaking through the prophetic message? The Spirit of God. The very Holy Spirit is speaking. It's because the New Testament hadn't been fully written yet. Can you imagine how helpful this would have been to that little church? They, they would have hung on every word or were supposed to have been hanging on every word. Yes, they were waiting for a letter from Paul and they, they received it and, and they were reading it and that was Paul, the New Testament apostle, but they also needed supplemented the Holy Spirit's prophetic man with a prophetic message when Paul wasn't anywhere around. And in this case, undoubtedly, Timothy wasn't anywhere around. They needed this. And you say, well, what, pray tell, would have been the problem? I mean, what, why were they rejecting this or despising this? Oh, glad you asked that. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Perhaps it's this. I don't know this. I'm not saying I'm laying all my eggs in this basket, but perhaps this is it. Perhaps this may be a reason why. We don't know with absolute certainly certainty because Paul doesn't reveal the details, but could it have been what he alludes to here in 2 Thessalonians 2? Look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ 
and are being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, notice this, verse 2, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit. Now read in there, my friends, not just some kind of wafting figure above the clouds that sort of swoops in on the congregation. A spirit, a person who is acting as though they are an emissary from the Lord. A spirit, a a, a teacher, a, a, a prophet, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit, and notice this, or a spoken word, or a letter, maybe even a false Pauline letter, seeming to be from us, he says, and what it is, is it to the effect? To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And then what does he say here? Let no one deceive you in any way. I mean, my dear friends, this can happen. I mean, what if you were sitting there? What if you were hearing this letter of Paul read? And what if it had been a long time since either you've heard it read or it was on its way or it had already been read, and then you're waiting for other encouragement, and the New Testament prophets are saying they're on arrival, and they come into town, and somebody, one of these New Testament prophets supposedly says, and the day of the Lord has come. And you're saying, well, wait a minute. That doesn't seem to square with what what Paul's saying, and he taught us this before, and that doesn't seem to jive with that. And, well, who is this person? I, I, I need to know. And you know that just as the letters of Paul and other New Testament documents, these Bible books that we cherish, just as they are being written and read to their respective congregations, did you know that the falsehood is abounding? Satan counterfeiting every letter, every situation, every scenario to deceive. Satan's at his work. He doesn't take take a day off. 1 Timothy 4 says, verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says, the Holy Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Oh my. And how are these demon teachings materializing in the church? through speakers. It's not just wafting in the air. It's not just like a video that's showing over someone's head. It's it's someone teaching. In fact, Paul even describes them to Timothy by saying in verse 2 of 1 Timothy 4, through the insincerity of liars who whose consciences are seared. I mean, folks, this is real. This would be like somebody coming into this church and standing here and saying, I have a word from the Lord. I am a New Testament prophet. No wonder Jesus said in Matthew 7, you will know them by their fruits. If this doesn't jive with that, they're not real. If the fruit of their life doesn't jive with that, he's not a true prophet. And they were abounding. I mean, can you imagine somebody who's in it for the money, sexual favors, whatever they're in it for, 
And 2 Peter 3, chapters 2 and 3 talk about them. Jude talks about them. We'll see more about that next time. They're all around us because they want to get into your bed or your pocket. And they tell you tales that are grandiose in style so that you would believe them, write the check, and undo the sheets so that you will be deceived. Can you imagine with the 27 books of the New Testament that we have and the fortification of the truth that we possess, how much more they needed the kind of warning that Paul gives here? Oh my, of course. Did you know that even Jesus himself gave us these words? Matthew 24, starting in verse 3. This is the Olivet Discourse. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? That is the time of Jesus' coming. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them. This is what he said. This is from the lips of Jesus himself. See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And then he says in verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. False prophets. Even from the lips of Jesus, he says so. He says that because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You say, well, now you've piqued my interest like nobody's business. How can you tell? How can you tell between the true prophet of God and the false prophet? How can you tell between the, the good and the evil? I mean, Paul goes on in 1 Thessalonians 5 to say, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And the next logical question for you and for me, it's in my mind too, how? How do you do it? Are, are there steps? Are there, are there ways you can tell? Is there a one, two, three? Is it, is it in some other place? Where is it? Is it in our Bibles? Or do, do we just have to figure it out on our own? I mean, the Thessalonians are asking grand questions undoubtedly. How do I know it's a true prophet? How do I know if it's a false prophet? How do I know that this particular prophetic utterance is good and this one is evil? And here's the answer. You come next Lord's Day and we'll continue to see this in bold relief. All right? Let's pray together. Our Father, this is so very important. Important not only for the Thessalonians, but important for us because it's in our Bibles too. It's, it's a word of encouragement for us to know what is true preaching, false preaching, true doctrine, bad doctrine is in our midst. Who are the true godly men? Who are the false teachers in our midst? They abound maybe even perhaps more so in our time than that time because our media allows it so. Oh, Father, grant us through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church which gather these new believers. And Paul says, I want you to continue to be encouraged even though you have a 
letter from me and another letter's coming, stand strong. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't stifle His work. These are the Spirit's prophetic men and, and they have a prophetic message. And now you need to test everything. Oh, I'm sure the Thessalonians said, but how? Lord, how? How do we, how do we test them? Paul, give us some, some keys. Give us some advice, some counsel. We, we've already received this, this word that was sent either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter, and they said it came from you, Paul. And it told us that the day of the Lord had already come, and we're vexed, and we're confused, and we're downcast and despondent, and we need to know who's true and who's false. Please help us. Oh, Father, thank you for helping us. Thank you for helping us understand your word and, and the keen observation of what these texts say and how they apply to us. And may we come next Lord's Day with a ready heart and a sharp mind to understand how we can test everything so that we may be able to hold fast what is good and to abstain, to hold aloof that which is evil. Oh, thank you for instructing us this day. Keep us all safe and ready for the next Lord's Day so that we can continue to learn the truth that is in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.